SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. On our return to Port Royal, I granted you clemency. And this is how you thank me? My throwing in your lot with him is a pirate. And a good man. Hello and welcome to SequelCast 2. Uh, SequelCast 2 is a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. With me, I have a uh, co-host, William Thrasher. Hello, everybody. Yo-ho! And we have a very special guest who is a uh, filmmaker out of Tokyo. He has done such short films as Tudor, Paleonaut, and A Utopia. Eric McEver, welcome to SequelCast 2. Uh, that is, uh, I think, the most pirate speak I will do for this show. But hello, everybody. Uh, nice to uh, nice to meet you. And uh, Matt and Thrasher, thank you for having me on the show. Good to have you, Matt. Oh yeah, not a problem. Uh, no, I know we, uh, Eric, you and I have been talking on uh, Facebook for, oh, I guess, the past year or so, thinking of what yeah. movies might be good for you to come on. And what is it about the Pirates of the Caribbean films that speak to you? Yeah, well, um, I, so I, uh, I suppose um, before that, I guess the, the simple introduction of who I am and what I do that I tell people, um, the, the short and facetious version of my life that is facetious but completely true, um, is that as a little boy I loved dinosaurs, which led to, as a slightly bigger boy, loving Godzilla, which led, as a slightly bigger boy slash rest of my life into adulthood, um, wanting to make Godzilla films, which has led to a life in Japan. It's led to studying and then making my living making films. Um, but, um, you know, filmmaking is, a, you can go to film school, and in fact, I did go to film school, but, um, you know, I think all the great filmmakers, film school or not, are self-taught. Filmmaking is something you only learn how to do well by doing it yourself. So uh, a turning point in my life, really, um, you know, filmmaking career, but as well as life was when I was 19. Actually, it was over a span of when I was 18 through 19, uh, my last year in high school. I made a, uh, I guess what you would characterize as the Pirates of the Caribbean fan film. Uh, so it's the early years of Captain Jack Sparrow. If you go on YouTube, you can look it up. And if you poke around, you can also find some special features. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, it's the story of uh, Jack Sparrow's early years and how he came to be the legendary pirate he is today. Um, I guess if I were to give the uh, the short synopsis, um, perhaps a bit of background, which is that I, I came of age in Oklahoma, which if you know a little bit about geography, you will know that there is no ocean there. Um, uh, no uh, sea either. Um, the biggest thing we have is a lake. Um, but undaunted, you know, I, I thought to myself, well, well um, what can we do? Um, you know, the best uh, creative uh, developments come through limitations. And I thought, well, um, you know, what if uh, Jack Sparrow's formative years revolved around him uh, struggling to become the thing he knew he was destined to be, namely a pirate? So the hook of the film that uh, came up with is that Jack Sparrow was raised in the Old West by cowboys. And the film is about a fish out of water 
struggling to find his place in the world, and he ends up teaming up with a uh, crew of um, Indians uh, to battle the evil Sheriff Jedediah Mukesh um, and, uh, you know, claim love, fortune, and all other manner of treasure. Now, was was there an attempt to reconcile how the, the Old West was the 1800s, but Jack Sparrow lives in the 1700s, or did you just kind of play fast and loose with that kind of thing for the sake of cool? Fast and loose with, uh, I would say that there's some um, unreliable narrator uh, <laughs> elements built into the plot. Uh, we, we, we poke around with it uh, with uh, just enough to let you know that uh, we were we had studied our history and we were aware of the... Uh, we are aware of what we were doing. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. You mentioned all the, the film stuff. Drasher and I first met through a film course in college, I believe. Uh, yes. Yeah, yes back in 2002. And uh, although neither of us ended up majoring in film, we took a few film electives. And this yeah. was a, uh, a film class where they had us edit on, oh, gee, what? It might have been like Macintoshes or something with uh, Avid, when it was the yeah. editing software. Yeah. And... Um, Thrasher's short film uh, was uh, oh, was it, it was like a vampire themed or something. Was that right? Yes, it was called uh, "Pizza the Delivering" about a pizza boy being stalked by an old world vampire. Oh. And, and mine, I decided to be contrarian. Let's do a genre I hate. So I did a romantic wrote a romantic comedy called "The Right Guy" or "The Right Girl," and it was about a guy who goes on a date with a girl and and ends up um not working out and she walks away and he's left alone at the but i made this the stupid mistake and this is something you see on shows like project Greenlight or whatever i filmed it near a fountain because the fountain looked nice what i didn't ah, think yeah. is the fountain yeah. makes a lot of noise and it drowns mm -hmm. out all the audio where it's nigh incomprehensible so i no. had to redub all the lines myself i originally did it in english and then the uh our film professor who was turker said matt uh, you should make a sub make it a subtitled film uh, in French. And I said, well, I don't know French, but I know Spanish. So I redubbed it in Spanish. And, um, yeah, and while Thrasher's short film got some applause and some titters, mine just got utter silence, which uh, is a reaction. So um... <laughs> That would have been Professor Gokhan, wouldn't it? Yeah, Gokhan, yeah. Uh, oh, he was cool. In fact, that one one thing, then we'll jump back to the Pirates film proper. Um, our Professor Gokhan at Savannah College Art and Design he is the star of one of the first, like, internet video memes, where it's him no imitating, like, the Terminator movements with his head. Uh, he turns around like this, and someone CG'd in the red Terminator eyes and put in the music. Uh, it's very old from the 90s. It's probably, like, a real player video or something, but... So that begs the question, was um, Professor Gokhan, was he aware of his role in history, or, um, nay, was he aware of the fact that he uh, is the subject of such a meme? Um... Somewhat, like what one person in our one student in our class was like, "Oh, that's the guy from the video," but and he would bring it up at the start of each of his um, courses okay. he taught. So I think yeah, he had some self awareness. Okay, so this um, is not a, stu a student getting revenge on him for no, no. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's not. He filmed it while he was getting his. What do I remember this shit? And I don't remember my wife's birthday. Um, yeah, no, he he was getting his. Uh, uh, he was getting his master's of film at uh, Florida State University. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a so, pretty good film school. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, pretty competitive. Uh, but, yeah, Pirates of the Caribbean. It's hard to believe yeah. this original film, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, came out in 2003. Yeah. Which, um, 15 years ago, and, uh, you know, four sequels later, 
Uh, directed by Gore Verbinski, produced by Jerry Juck- Bruckheimer, with a screenplay by Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio. Story. Well, uh, in, interject here. Terry Rossio, in particular, is one of my personal heroes. Oh, he, that's great. Uh, the, yeah, he manages a wonderful red website called um, WordPlayer.com. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, I think, it deserves a, a far better reputation than it has. It's, um, it's, it's a wonderful. It's a bible for screenwriting. So, highly recommended for you aspiring screenwriters out there. Yes. Um, no, I, I, I've been to that website a lot myself, and it has a lot of great articles. And yeah, I, I don't yeah. know why that, like the John August stuff, really has taken off. And yeah. this is the Terry Rossio's website. It's this quiet little thing in the background that has, uh, it, it's at least like a book or two worth of essays. It is. Um, I find it far more accessible and practical than um, Robert McKee, who's the you know he's the other big uh, yeah. 200, 200 pound gorilla of uh, screenwriting professors. But um, yes. Uh, based on the uh, theme park ride Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, starring this, yes. And just to, to talk about the, it being based on the theme park ride, which seemed mm, to yeah. be a tremendous act of, of synergy building and hubris. So this. This was one of those movies that people thought was going to break the studio because it's coming after Tower of Terror, which is a TV movie based on a Disney ride. And it also came after Country Bear Jamboree, which was based on another Disney park attraction. And despite the presence of Christopher Walken, was a legendary bomb at the time. What I didn't realize, and Wikipedia uh, could be wrong, uh, the Brian De Palma film Mission to Mars is based off a theme park ride. What? Well, there was, there used to be in Tomorrowland, I think there was a Mission to Mars attraction, so maybe maybe it was to an extent. Ah, they were just lying about it at the time. That's yeah, nice. that, that one struck me as being quite weird. And you did get the Tomorrowland uh, movie with the, um, George Clooney not that long ago. Yeah, now, um, so talking about other Disney films based on theme park rides, yes. also this narrowly predated The Haunted Mansion, starring Eddie Murphy. Murphy. <laughs> came out uh, a few months later, and um, you know, people briefly, uh, I think, after the success of Pirates, assumed that the Haunted Mansion had potential. And um, as I recall, there was one gag in that film that I laughed at. Uh, first five minutes, no less. Um, the, the Evers and Evers real estate gag. The thing that that killed it for me, and this is in the trailer, so you have fair warning. Uh, if, if your movie has a character delivering a prophecy... And that prophecy contains the line, find the key that must be found. You got a bad <laughs> prophecy. Oh. Uh, yeah, and, you know, even, and, uh, I think within the past five years, uh, Guillermo del Toro is trying to get his version of a Haunted Mansion movie off the ground. Yeah. Which fell through. And, um, was also it with... Cr- Crimson Peak? Was it that? I, basically, the... yes. I mean, Crimson yeah. Peak was like his... Uh, yeah, that, that, I have very mixed feelings in that film, but it's very nice to look at, which you can say about a lot of Del Toro. Um, I mean, Del Toro, he's also legendary for having several legend projects in development at any one given time, yeah. um, which is, I mean, that that is shrewd. That's a, that's an extremely shrewd strategy to have, but um, it also, you kind of, when a Del Toro project gets announced, there's a minimum level of excitement that I'm willing to bring to the table because the odds of it actually sure. coming through are uh, pretty yeah. minimal. Especially all, all the mouth of madness he's been trying to get that off the ground for oh, almost God, 20 yeah. years now. Yeah. And uh, But you, you see the Lovecraft stuff, you know, creep not so subtly into like Hellboy and those movies and stuff. Not so, not so subtly at all, yeah. Yeah, so... 
Well, he, he's very good at cannibalizing parts from movies he never got a chance to make and putting them into move, the movies he does get to make. So, Yeah. Well, speaking of Lovecraft, I would say a fair amount of Lovecraft um, shows up in the second Pirates of the Caribbean, which follows the first, which nominally we're talking about, but... Um, this is far too good of a film to go on this many tangents this early. I just want to. I agree. Away. I just yeah. want to mention one thing about Gore Verbinski. Yeah. Before, before this, I mean, he did music <laughs> videos, which is a standard sort of track to doing features, and uh, absolutely nothing wrong with that. Several talented people have done that, including a former guest we had on the show many, many moons ago. Um, I should know the guy's name. The director of the original Ninja Turtles live-action movie. Oh, yes. Uh, did a lot of music yeah. videos. and did a lot of Muppet work, too, on uh, all that stuff. Storyteller, all that. Um, but anyhow, with uh, Rubinsky, before this, he did sort of uh, lower stakes movies with uh, Mouse Hunt. Uh-huh. And uh, The Mexican, which was sort of a, a drama thing with Brad Pitt. And then uh, The Ring, which was a remake of a J-horror film. Um, have you seen the original, Eric? I have, um, and I've also seen the remake. Uh, yeah. I think they're they're both excellent, and actually, this is one of the rare remakes of J Horror that I think was um, was culturally translated quite well to a Western setting. Uh huh. It's not. It, it actually wasn't so different. I was quite surprised going back to the original, and there is some, you know, maybe more set up and stuff, maybe more explaining of the plot in the American version. But you're right; it, it keeps like the tone and the feel of it. It's um. Uh, I, I've got to say, Mouse Hunt is one of my favorite movies from that period. It's it's just such a simple premise executed so well. It's it's one of those rare live action films that I think manages in live action to ca- capture some of the same joyous spirit of a Chuck Jones cartoon. Exactly. It, the, it mm. has the, the same energy, and yet I think the miraculous thing about it is that it manages to hold and sustain that energy for a feature's length worth of entertainment. Um, yeah, and the other Gore against Tanshin that's worth going on at this stage is he, um, he also cut his teeth doing commercials, including, most notably, he's the mastermind behind the, uh, the Budweiser Frogs. Oh! Huh. Yeah. That was a huge, you couldn't avoid that commercial for years. Yeah, no, see, so he's, um, he's an interesting guy. I mean, as I understand it, his, um, his background is in music. I mean, he, um, hmm. he played in several bands, and I know there's some, um, some records out there with uh, his vocals and his um, his music on them, but uh, he's he's just an interesting, well-rounded artist. And if you look at the films that he's gone to make, there's definitely um, he's he is a candidate for um, for up, upholding the auteur theory because uh, there's a lot of Gore Verbinskiisms that you see showing up um, over the course of his career. Um, you know, he uh, I think you know because of Pirates of the Caribbean, he's known as a big studio filmmaker, but there's there's quite a lot of eccentricity and quite a lot of personality in his work. He's a, he's a real artist. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, this movie, uh, surprisingly, as Thresher kind of hinted at, was a big success, making over $650 million worldwide off a budget of $140 million. But, uh, yeah, but also, like, you know, pirates and uh, pirate movies and Western movies and musicals, you know, are all considered, like, very risky things to make. And with the pirate movies in particular, you're filming out on the water most of the time, which gets uh, expensive and introduces a whole lot of risk. And tremendous technical challenges. Uh, yeah, that, that too, sure. Um, well, there's so, a couple but, of um, there's a couple of actually interesting stories about um, the dangerous position that this film was in. So one is just the year prior, Disney had released uh, Treasure Planet, 
which, um, interestingly ah, yeah, enough, okay. um, it was actually <laughs> it was co-written by the screenwriters of this film, the, the aforementioned Terry Rossio and Ted Elliott. Um, and I, I'm a full-on apologist for Treasure Planet. I think it's a wonderful piece of animation um, and storytelling, but uh, it, it bombed. So, um, you know, Disney was already uh, not in the best place in regards to pirate films. And now this would have been prior to Treasure Planet, but uh, Michael Eisner had been planning on pulling the plug on this project. And there's a famous story about how, uh, I mean, Gore Verbinski, the aforementioned director, how what he did is he famously, he told the crew, even though nominally the production had been shut down, to show up for work as if nothing had happened. Um, Eisner was scheduled to visit the pre-production offices, and Verbinski very quietly and matter-of-factly, um, you know, as though nothing were had, was wrong, as though he wasn't, wasn't aware of anything, he showed um, some of the pre-production art. You know, Eisner you know, saw these amazing pictures of skeletons and yeah. ships that, oh, we're making this, and, you know, oh, okay, you know, no, we're, we're in production on this thing, and I think that's a, you know, that's a wonderful story of the the mixture of hubris and uh, hubris and cajones that it takes to uh, <laughs> to get a film made. Well, at the time, I think everyone was prepped for this movie to fail. You know, beyond being a a ridiculous big, uh, ridiculously highly budgeted pirate movie, which had a really poor track record in Hollywood, uh, being based on a well on a sort of well-remembered but very old Disney theme park attraction, but also having Johnny Depp in it, who at the time wasn't a, wasn't like a... He was well-known, but he wasn't like a huge blockbuster star. He was doing right. mostly sort of weird, oddball, independent films. And all of you, why is he in this? This yeah. isn't the kind of movie Johnny Depp does, and this movie would end up kind of shaping his career to this day. It's, it's astonishing. Um... Now, I don't know if some of this is apocryphal, but um, there was an amazing uh, list of actors who were rumored for the Jack Sparrow hmm. role. Um, yeah, among them, Robin Williams, very early in the film's uh, development. Um, Christopher Walken. Um, oh, golly, who else? Um, it, it's uh, uh, Nicolas Cage, I think. That was, that was one that was debunked. Uh, Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, it um, it went through an interesting development history. Uh, Jim Carrey, Michael Keaton. Uh, hmm. <laughs> yeah, interesting. And it, it's um, you look at the poster of the film now, at least what's on Wikipedia. It has Jack Sparrow front and center, but you go back and watch this original movie, and he's not the lead of the film. He's very much a supporting character. Yeah. And one could argue this first movie is the only one in the series that has the exact right amount of Captain Jack Sparrow in it. It's uh yeah no um well and I think the you know again the screenwriters they um they were very shrewd and they were aware of the fact in multiple interviews they talk about it's you know it's essentially um Elizabeth and Will's story um I would say arguably mm -hmm. Elizabeth's story and interestingly enough you know Jack Sparrow he does not act as the protagonist of the film he sort of wanders in and out of the plot and he does not make decisions that pivot around the main axis of the story he makes decisions that pivot around what he wants at any given moment. Um, and it, uh, it it's to the benefit of the film. It um, He's a he's a fascinating character. Well, something else that, that occurred to me uh, thinking about this film in preparation for this episode is that Jack, well, one, yes, Jack Sparrow is a supporting role. He's not the, he's not the protagonist. But Jack Sparrow's arc is very much a Western arc. He is very much a 
he might mm. he he has the same arc as a Wild West gunfighter out for revenge. He's hunting mm. down a man who wronged him, and this re- act of redemptive violence is the only mm-hmm. thing that's keeping him going. You know, despite all of his bluster and all of his shenanigans. Um, and I do just as a storytelling device, I do like the notion that he's got his old pistol and it's loaded with a charge of powder and it has one musket ball in it, and he's just saving that for the day he can get his revenge. Although that being said, gun technology being what it was at the time, there's no way <laughs> all that gun's going to work by the time he finds it. Particularly given the number of times that it gets dropped in the ocean in this film alone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Never suffers corrosion. <laughs> the powder yeah. is always dry. Well, yeah, so you know. I'm trying to think to back when I first watched this movie, and um, I, I waited on video for this movie because I was thought, you know, I'd seen the trailers, hadn't even seen the movies for things like Country Bear Jamboree, and I was so tired of all this theme park shit. Oh, this much. But then when I saw how much money it made, and my sister said, oh, it's really good, Matt, you should see it. I think uh, my dad got it as a Christmas present unexpectedly, because that was the the DVD to get everyone for Christmas, I suppose. And uh, so we watched it, and it was uh, really enjoyable. I'm sort of kicking myself for not catching it on uh, on the big screen. Uh, What about you, Eric? When did you first catch this movie? Yeah, well, I'm curious um, if this is something that um, either of you remember, but I um, I definitely saw it opening weekend, and part of the reason I remember that is because this was released in very close proximity. I want to say, I, I don't remember which is which, but one was on a Wednesday and one was on a Friday with The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which oh. conventional wisdom, at least among um, my high school friends and I, held hmm. was going to be the big hit. Um, you know, it starred Sean Connery. Yeah. Um, it had the, uh, <laughs> this is uh, not surprisingly dated it very quickly, but it had what at the time was the extremely cool marketing strategy of a uh, abbreviated uh, title on all the promotional materials, namely uh, LXG. Um, and uh, yeah, no, that was, uh, that, that was slated at least in uh, the minds of teenage boys to be the big... Uh, Hit enduring action film, and uh, we'll see how history proved us wrong. Well, I believe that also, with the Lever Short Air Gentleman, I believe it also had the largest custom car ever made for a film. That's the, the right. giant Captain Nemo car. It was apparently right. yes, the, the largest custom vehicle ever made, at least based on length, and it was impossible to drive <laughs> as a result. Yeah, that film, um, no, I haven't seen it since. Um, I, I'm curious how it's aged. I recall it being not bad, but uh, not having a whole lot of personality, and given the source of material, lack of personality is um, rather unforgivable. Uh, right, and, and you look at all these things they bring into, um, you know, miniseries and so forth, and especially the tone of something like Penny Dreadful on Showtime. Yeah, uh, It would just make a very good, I think, long-form TV series as opposed to a movie. Um, and I, I just looked up the uh, domestic, meaning United States uh, gross, or does that mean North American? I don't really know. Uh, the hmm. gross for um, July 11th through the 13th when this came out. Okay. And uh, you were absolutely correct in your memory. That is the same opening weekend as League. And yeah. I think this was a big shock to people, even though Pirates was a big Disney film. It was at number one. Pirates was at number one with $46 million. Number two was with the league at 23 million so about half the gross oh, and, no uh, kidding. Okay. in fact Sean Connery had such a miserable time making League of Extraordinary Gentlemen he retired from film from uh, being an actor yeah 
Though he did no. return for uh, Lord Billy. Uh, yes, he, re- he returned for Lord. He re- returned for Lord Billy two animated films made in Scotland, where he's a skateboarding grandfather. Um, that I don't think ever saw a release in the United States, but the trailers are it. It looks um, it looks like a, a children's CG show from the late nineties. Well, I hope he had a pleasant experience making those. He's far too legendary of a filmmaker to. Yeah, uh, I think he just enjoys yeah. not working and golfing, and he's deserved it. Why not? He's, he's, he's if anyone's earned it, it's him. So Thrasher, when did yeah. you first see Pirates? So I so I gave it a pass when it came out in theaters, only because uh, you know. I, Based on the based on the track record of the other amusement park uh, movies, but also pirates at the time, nothing bored me more than pirates and Batman. So I was kind of giving <laughs> anything related to those two subjects a pass. I did not see this until it came out on DVD. I was visiting uh, my hometown of Norfolk, Virginia, and I uh, was hanging out with my friend Bess, and she had just gotten the DVD, and so so we watched it, uh, and. Uh, then when I went back uh, to our college, I was heavily involved in the Student Activities Council, so I did get a chance to see this on the big screen, because after it had left theaters, the Student Activities Council arranged a screening of the film in the school's theater. Oh, like yeah. Half of the Student Activities Councils were dressed as pirates. It was pretty fun. So yeah, I, I did see it in the theater, just like way after the fact. And one thing, uh, so the first printing of the DVDs, this is just something I like, because I love little props and things. The premiere of Pirates of the Caribbean they had like a big mountain of gold. They had made all mm. these prop old oh, Aztec coins yeah, that they had just decorating the premiere space and the original printing of the DVDs they all had a pouch with one of the coins from the <laughs> premiere. They had oh, enough fake coins neat. that if you bought, they, they all of the DVDs had them and it was really it was really cool. I mean yeah it was a little shiny plastic thing but it's movie quality it was yeah. really neat. Um, it's it's worth mentioning there um, because it's on the DVD cover um, and uh, actually the DVD cover and the um, theatrical poster are slightly different but um, I think it's worth mentioning I think this is actually one of the few film posters of the Photoshop era of poster making to really at least in my book um, reach an, an iconic level of design and imagery I think the the poster for this original film I think it's it's a really sharp design it's a sharp composition and I think um, I think it's it, it's it's one of the few posters made with modern digital technology that I think it it really looks mythic and I think approaches the level of like a Drew Struzan piece of work. Um, well, something else I love I love about this, yeah. as far as iconography goes, is you know the 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 skull with the bandana and the two cutlasses. Yeah, um, it's it's all cliched pirate imagery. <laughs> But it's used so well and is recontextualized so well in all the future posters and logos that it kind of it transcends its own cliche. I, I do truly love the, the skull with the crossed cutlasses that's all over these movies. Well, I'll just um, throw in there. My uh, early years of Captain Jack Sparrow made at age 19. I put great effort into creating my own uh, re-mythologized poster for that. So a couple of discoveries there. One is that if you put a um, a cowboy hat onto that skull, it uh, it, it works nicely. Um, the other discovery you made. So if you'll notice the poster for the Pirates of the Caribbean: The Curse of the Black Pearl, um, as as I said, it's a very strong visual design, and in it, um, Jack Sparrow he's holding his uh, his cutlass as well as his iconic uh, pistol up to his face, crossed in a in a warrior's pose, and it's it's a great image. I mean, it's it's sharp. 
it's um, you know it, it's nicely symbolic. However, when uh, we went to recreate that uh, for the poster of our film, we discovered it is very awkward physically to hold both a gun and a sword up to within <laughs> millimeters of your face. Um, you have to hunch your shoulders and kind of scrounch in. Um, and it's also, uh, you know, this is uh, seemingly obvious, but it's in fact quite dangerous to have two yeah. lethal weapons held up <laughs> next to your head. So, um, uh, yeah, there's a, a rather um, sharp line, um, a sharp but wide line in between what is cool and what is practical. Um, and Johnny Depp uh, crossed it dramatically. I mean, I think, I'm looking right at that poster as you talked about it. I bet you those hands are composited in separately. Yeah. And you mentioned all the physical <laughs> machinations to go like this between the different things. But, um... L listeners, it, give it a try right now, wherever, yes. wherever and whenever you're listening. Um, exactly. Except if you're driving. Yeah, if you're driving, uh, perhaps perhaps not. Um, and I, I, I did listen to, uh, the DVD is one of the rare Disney DVDs that have audio commentaries. It seems like as years goes on, they cut really cut back on those special features. Yeah. But um, they had uh, some of the... Originally, the screenplay was by Jay Wolpert and Stuart Beatty, and I think one of them was on one of the commentaries. Yeah. And they mentioned how it wasn't until uh, Elliot and Rossio um, came on that Jack Sparrow was even a character. Mm. And that so much of this, uh, you know, development of the script didn't even have Jack Sparrow in there. And yet, in some ways, he's what makes the film, even if the film is not about him. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what I think it is, you know, because that would suggest that the titular pirates of the Caribbean were going to be the villains. But in a, in a movie like yeah, this, yeah. if you're going to have this many pirates, it's going to work so much better if at least one of the pirates is nominally one of the good guys. Yeah, so I agree with that. The other thing I will say, and I think this is um, this is something that is undersung about the film, but I think part of the reason why it succeeds so well and why I would – to one degree or another, I think it's developed a f into a fairly strong series, is the supporting characters are quite well developed, and um, I think there's a lot of effort put into giving all of the supporting characters um, and the co-leads uh, unique and, I would say, counterintuitive personalities of their own. Um, I mean, I think the uh, the standout there is Jeffrey Rush as Barbosa, yes. who is fascinating in his interpretation of the character. Um, and he's he's stated in multiple interviews that his intent was to play him as the misunderstood hero of the hymn, hmm. and uh, and and that uh, that shows quite well. There's um there's a sense that it comes through. I mean, and again, Rush has talked about this, where in his mind, Barbosa, who is someone who always dreamed of becoming part of the nobility, and hmm. was chasing after that, but he realized that he couldn't achieve all those trappings through honest work. And so piracy was the only way to attain that. And actually, if you go through and see this in the four sequels that followed, there's a very strong through line to the character in chasing after that. Well, there is like an affectation of the aristocratic about him. Yes. And and I do I, and that that's something that that never occurred to me about him playing it as as the hero. But I think there's a lot of truth to that because because what what is uh, Barbosa but a man who's trying to lift a curse from himself and his loyal crew. Exactly, and and there's a wonderful scene partway through, where Will Turner accuses him of being you lying bastard, and he, with great and real anger, turns to him and says, "Don't impugn me, honor boy." And I I quite like the fact that this is that his honor is something that's important to him. 
Um, of course, what's also fascinating and wonderful about Jeffrey Rush's characterization is that seconds later he turns around and proceeds to laugh at Will Turner's face for him, uh, for him failing to provide specifications for the, the pact uh, that he's giving for setting Elizabeth free. So uh, it, it's wonderful I was able to embody these contradictions in the character he's playing. It, it is, you know, that's quite... And you also get the sense that Jeffrey Rush is having a lot of fun playing the character, and that he's wanted oh, to be yes. a pirate his whole life. He really chews the scenery. It does make me wonder, and it, I think it's a bit late for this now because of the actor's health, if they ever considered Tim Curry for one of these pictures. Because oh, he did play a yeah. pirate in the Bucket Treasure Island. Uh, but And he was the voice of Captain Hook in uh, the animated series Peter Pan and the Pirates. God damn it, oh. yeah. And, and, <laughs> and uh, only in uh, theaters in L.A., he played the lead of uh, Pirates of Penzance. No nice. kidding. Wow. And you can look on YouTube, and there's uh, someone recorded the whole thing, and Tim Curry performing uh, I Am a Pirate King is just what you think it is. Uh, oh, that's orgasmic. For better or for worse, but that's something pretty special. Uh, another performance I think that's overlooked in this is Jack Davenport as Norrington. Yes. He it, it, It's a very reserved role, not very showy, and it, it, he's basically playing an asshole and sort of a... In sort of an ignored part of a love triangle. You could even argue it's a love square between <laughs> Elizabeth, Norrington, Jack Sparrow, and uh, Will Turner. But it's, it's, you know, he's he's like a bad guy, but on the good guy's side, I guess. Like, it, it's interesting. I like that the character is there, and he does a bit more in the sequels, too. Well, well he's an antagonist, but he's on the side of Law and Order. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's, well, it's just... He's yeah, well, so good at being smug. So an interesting thing that I'll throw in there. Um, so he is on the side of law and order. But one thing that I was thinking when I was rewatching this last night is there's a very strong, surprisingly strong sense in this built into the structure of this film of British aristocracy and the sort of the, the latent classism of British society. Um, you know, if you look at the film, both visually in the races and the sexes that are represented, but the pirates are egalitarian. Um, they're very democratic. Um, and the characters that are struggling, struggling the British colonial society, they're under the foot of classism and the limitations of what their rank and gender can allow them to achieve within that system. Um, and Norrington, I think he's someone who both represents, but also in his own way struggles against that system. And I think this is part of the reason why the film is better than has any right to be, because that theme is subtly, but I think noticeably laced into the plot and the, the machinations of the characters. So how do we feel about Orlando Bloom as Will Turner? Because he, he's coming fresh off of Lord of the Rings as Legolas, and here he has facial hair and darker colored hair to make himself look different, but also, I think, fit in with the time period. I I think he does, does a good job, but as far as, like, as, as far as the character, you know, being, like, the blacksmith's apprentice, I almost wish this character was played by, like, a kid. I wish this was kind of like huh. a, a Jack Hawkins. I wish this character fit more in the Jack Hawkins boyish adventurer age range. Uh... I, I f it feels like that was the original intent of this character, but then it just got aged up and then had the romantic plot attached to it. I just I, I feel like this would have worked better as a kid. As good as Orlando Bloom is in the role, this I think this needs to be a boy adventurer. Yeah, on the thresher, I think that's a that's a very um, a very good insight there. I think Matt a minute ago 
you were describing the uh, the love square of the plot, and yes. I noticed you kind of tripped over your words and were trying to remember Will. Uh-huh. And I think that's very telling. Um, he, he's got a, a rather thin presence in the film. And, um, you know, I was, as again, I was rewatching it, I was thinking, um, you know, Orlando Bloom, he really, he does play the character realistically, I think, as a young, naive boy, a bit of a boy in a man's body. Um, but the fact that he's in a man's body, I think, I, I think there's nothing wrong with his characterization, but it means that in a film with so many other strong male characters, he gets lost in the shuffle of it, and it makes it difficult to to latch onto him as you know as an iconic, relatable, sympathetic character. Right, he lacks a bit of heft, and uh, you, I think he's okay in this. He's worse in uh, the Ridley Scott film Kingdom of Heaven, oh, in which he has to play a kind of which I think has an okay script, and the director's cut is a lot better. But you're giving like a, it feels like you're getting a man's role to a, a boy, and that's nothing against him, but he's no, he lacks what Russell Crowe or, uh, hell, even Dwayne The Rock Johnson or, or some, something, something lacking there, and it's maybe it's just the features he's born with or his build or, or something. But yeah, he just tends to fade into the background a bit, and uh, these Pirates films, uh, and it gets more so as the sequels goes on, are just jam-packed with characters. Yeah, which makes it really hard for any single one to stand out. And uh, you mentioned the class thing. It reminds me you have all the the funny sort of banter between the the soldiers that are dressed in red that sort of are making Mm -hmm. little jokes and aside. And then you also, uh, as sort of their counterpart, you have two of the uh, pirate skeletons. One is the actor that played Gareth on the British version of The Office who has his eyeball Uh, popping out all the time. Yes. And, uh, yeah, all all kinds of Rosencrantz and Guildensternian characters. Well, I, I, I do love the the whole deal with his like his his wooden eye. Uh, that I, there's something I find delightful about that that bit of grotesque physical comedy. Yeah, no, they're very memorable characters. I, I enjoy having the uh, you know the sort of the bumbling vaudeville-esque duos yeah. in um, in both sides of the system. And um, and you're right, there's a lot of fun business with the eye. Um, there's a deleted scene uh, featured on the DVD where um, Elizabeth is changing into her dress, and so um, uh, Pintel and Rigetti, the two characters, you know, they're trying to sneak a peek, as they say, um, yeah. except that, uh, you know, uh, Rigetti fails to realize that he can't see with his wooden eye, and he's <laughs> leading up into a people struggling. And it's a delightful little scene. You know, it ends with, of course, him getting hit over the head, um, which is part of the joy of the, of the relationship of those two characters. You know, they're played as... You know, I, I don't I, I don't sense a homosexual relationship to them, but they're but they're played as you know as codependent, uh, you know can't do without one another types and uh, well, they're Frodo and Sam. Like, um, yeah, uh-huh. they need oh. each other. Yeah, yeah no. and I, there, there's a wonderful throwaway line I noticed uh, watching it last night uh, to prep uh, to prepare for the show, where um, they talk about all the money they're gonna get and oh we can get you a real glass eye and then the, yeah. the fellow with the wooden eye says like oh this wooden eye splinters something awful and I felt a little sorry for him and then I was thinking about it further and it's like wait a second you know they're they're, they're undead really and I guess they can still feel pain what does tend to overthink it a bit but yeah it's it's well, just actually, except they don't so I'm glad I'm glad you brought up them feeling pain so some oh, okay. does and it it, it does exceptionally well and it's something that regrettably is very rare in fantasy filmmaking is is one there's some restraint with the supernatural elements the only supernatural element is the cursed Mm. gold but also they spell out how the cursed gold works 
They never break their own rules, and the way the cursed gold works becomes an important aspect of the plot. Mm-hmm. Because that's the thing, if you, if you stole the gold, you're effectively, you're, you're the living dead. But because you're dead, you can't really feel, taste, or experience anything, despite being immortal and virtually indestructible. And so that's that's what they're doing. They're trying to reclaim their mortality so that they can, they can taste and touch and do all these things. Um, but I love that that plays up in the film's climax, where after they've gathered the, all the gold together and are becoming mortal, Jack steals a piece of gold... To make yeah. himself undead, knowing that he's going to get attacked later. Uh-huh. Like I, I love that the characters figure out how the magic works, and then they use that knowledge to their advantage. That, that is really what won me. That's what made me fall in love with this film when I first saw it. I was having a good time watching it, but the moment the characters were smart enough to make the magic work for them, that's when I fell in love. No, no I, I, it's a very strong conceit, and um, the rules of the conceit are very well enforced. Um, and, you know, I think it's something that from, from the, the writing stage that attracted people to it, there are mul- multiple actors um, who have stated that part of the reason they were attracted to the project was because it was not about pirates trying to steal something, but pirates trying to return a treasure that had been stolen. And I think that's a wonderful, um, you know, it, it it undercuts the, you know, the greed that is essential to pirate stories. The other thing I love about it, and this is even, you know, this is just a throwaway line that's given in the film, but um, they describe that it's Aztec gold that was cursed by the heathen gods as revenge for the slaughter that Cortez was wreaking upon, you know, the, the, the innocent people of the Aztec empire. And I love the, the history that is built into that setup and the idea that this is a world with magic and monsters that has been around for a while. And the characters that we're witnessing now um, you know, although they are perhaps mythical from our perspective, that they're living um, the consequences of a world uh, that has been around for quite a long time and that there are other stories and other adventures in this world. So even just in the setup of the curse, there's quite a lot of care um, and thought that's just it's it's nascent in what you're seeing. Yeah, you're, you're, both of you were mentioning the rules. And, and one thing with that is uh, I stumbled upon a interview with the. Uh, one of the screenwriters, Terry Rossio, and, and he said, originally in their version of the script, their idea was the pirates would become undead whenever it was nighttime. Mm-hmm. But then they got pushback from the uh, special effects department saying, well, that would make this film cost half a billion dollars. <laughs> and, they said, well, and they said, well, what if it's just uh, when the moon comes out and then uh, you can have clouds and stuff and they can be human at night otherwise? And they said, oh, that's fine. And, and, and then it... it, it, it you know, came to be from sort of a practicality, and yet I think that further restriction makes it much more interesting than you have the famous scene where, you know, the, uh, Jeffrey Rush just walks through a glimmer of moonlight, and it's in the trailers, and he says, like, whatever, like, you're going to be scared now. It's a better line than that. You best start <laughs> believing in ghost stories. That's it, yeah. You're in one. <laughs> well, there is something there is something very poetic about that whole notion of the moonlight shows us for what we truly are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you think of the design of the undead pirates? Overall, I like it. Like they're not they're not skeletons. It's my understanding that originally they were going to be skeletons, but they decided not to because it just always looked silly. Um, mm. Because it just it sort of it would always evoke like. The skeleton dance, that old cartoon from of iWorks, no matter how they meant it. Um, <laughs> overall, I like it because they look they look desiccated. 
the way a body left on a beach is going to look after a few days. Um, but they're still able... I think what does it for me is, despite the fact that they're walking corpses, they can still be very, very expressive. I think that's what makes it work for me. They can still smile, they can still scowl, and it still reads as an understandable human expression. Uh, which, that was another interesting thing about it, is, is they struggled with how to do that for a while. They tried makeup, it didn't work. They tried some different CGI tricks, mm. it didn't work. The way they ended up doing it is that they scanned beef jerky into their computers, uh, tinted it to look kind of green, blue, and bruise-like. And so you're essentially seeing layered beef jerky that's animated through kind of a a version of motion tracking. Because they discovered, oh, beef jerky? Well, that does look like flesh that's just been left out in the sun. (laughs) Well, that that is what it is. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I think we were quite fortunate. I think the special effects in this uh, overall hold up pretty well, which is pretty astonishing for a movie that's 15 years old. Keep in yeah. mind that they were done by Industrial Light and Magic, and this was the, the fortunate enough to be made in 2003. So this is after Lord of the Rings. This is after, you know, motion capture technology had advanced, the resolution had advanced. Um, the characters are not nearly as rubbery as a motion picture just four years before The Phantom Menace with uh, George R. Binks. And, I mean, think about, I mean, now Phantom Menace was, you know, in development since, like, 92 or something, but... In that short five years, how quickly computers advanced in uh, processing power and, and the, the 3D graphics and stuff, it's starting to look more convincing, and yet they're designed in such a way where it's not uh, the uncanny valley. Well, I think the other thing that helps is, you know, because of the conceit where they only look like the dead in moonlight, we rare, we rarely see their true forms except for very brief moments. So they're never on screen mm-hmm. long enough in that form for us to really pick the special effect apart or to yeah. notice the holes. And also that is in darkness that helps cloud up some of the, uh, you know, what otherwise might be viewed as sloppiness in, in the visual effects. Uh, I, I recall in, at, at college we had um, some artists from ILM came and gave a talk, and they showed, I think, clips from, if it wasn't this Pirates movie, it might have been the second one, and someone from the one of the students from the audience asked sort of an asshole question, but I, I think it was fair. They're like, the, you know, I've noticed in some of your movies, like in the skeletons in this pirate movie, they, they look kind of shitty. Why is your stuff going downhill? And there was a 30-second pause, and uh, they, I wish I could remember the, the people that were speaking, what their name was, but uh, his response was, well, you know, sometimes we show um, animatics, you know, very early pre-viz CG versions of this to the directors. And the directors say, great, that's what I want in the film. And the directors have final say, depending on their contract. And so he, and I thought that was pretty illuminating how he said in some of these big films, sometimes it's like the artists want to improve it, but they're legally uh, prevented from doing so. Yeah. No, so it's interesting. Um, I, um, I, I don't want to overhype it here, but I do. Sure. I have a few friends of friends who've worked with Gore Verbinski, and they've all uniformly... Um, said wonderful things about the experience, both of just mm-hmm. um, his his kind of low key nature, but I think he's he's also a good listener, um, and I think has a knack for understanding where the people he's working with are coming from, and I think that goes a long way towards explaining why both the quality of what we see up on screen here, but also um, you know I think the shrewdness of with it's used. It's it's a fascinating story you're saying about how the the moonlight conceit came to be but it actually i mean it works to wonderful effect for the direction of the film with mm-hmm. so many wonderful scenes where characters will dramatically emerge into mood light um at opportune moments 
Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's really canny and really dramatic. Um, and it's, you know, it, it makes for a, a number of great visual reveals throughout the film. So this film is uh, a little bit over, or almost two and a half hours long. Yes. And this was kind of a trend for Hollywood pictures at the time, I think especially because of like Lord of the Rings and, and things like that, these big epics being that one. Do you think it needs to be that long, or do you think it worked? Because, I mean, it does take a, a while for the story to get started, where you learn more about the curse in detail, but on the other hand, you get a lot of good character moments with um, Elizabeth and Will as children and, and so forth. I think on an objective level, there is a version of this film that's about two hours long that is superior. Um, that having been said, everything in this film I find immensely enjoyable. And so I don't, I, I, I don't, as I'm watching it, I don't regret the fact that it is as long as it is. So it's, you know. the, the length of this film, it's something that it's, it's rare, but I like when this happens. It's one of those, it, it is an overlong film, but it's one of those overlong films where the moment it, it occurs to me that it's overlong is the moment that the credits start. Like, mm. it's, <laughs> wow. I've been here for over two hours, and oh wait, no, that's the final shot. Okay, we're good. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it, it's it's an immensely watchable film, and um, I think there's a lot packed into it. But generally speaking, everything that's packed into it serves a function um, and is for the better of the overall whole. So uh, I think I think as a whole, it holds up. And I think it. I really like how the extended length contributes to. Uh... What basically is almost a 15 or 20 minute epilogue to the film where Jack Sparrow is going to be hanged and you have Will dressed up as a musketeer and, and you get all this kind of, it's a nice kind of closure and send off and it doesn't end in a way that screams for a sequel but yet at the time, and I think this was mentioned earlier, it's like those Sherlock Holmes stories, they're constantly referencing to adventures we've never seen. Um, and so and it, all, it leaves the door open, but it's not like the pornographic shot from the American Godzilla film from 98, where it goes, oh, there's a bunch of baby Godzilla eggs in a sewer or whatever the hell. Like, it it just has a tasteful ending where it's sort of like the uh, original Star Wars, where it's a self-contained story, it's a simple story, and if there's a sequel, so be it. But it doesn't, it's not like some of these films... Uh, where, you know, like that, that King Arthur movie with Guy Ritchie that came out a year or two ago was meant to be the first of seven films. So we have a film that's like all exposition, and then there's no payoff. No one gets to see the ending. Ah, Fantastic Beasts, can one much? <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I like to think of that as like Harry Potter meets Pokemon. I don't know. I, I, <laughs> yeah. There, There is one other thing in this movie that I want to talk to. So, yes, it is based on a ride from uh, the Disneyland theme park. And in addition to everything else this movie's doing they do manage to fit in references to the ride, and they're not too glaring. Um, the, the first being in, in the, the, the prologue of the movie uh, with the young Elizabeth Swan, the, the little folk song she's singing is the song from the Pirates mm -hmm. of the Caribbean ride. Oh, okay. Where it's these pirates just talking about how they're bad people, we're scoundrels and bounders and really bad eggs, so like, <laughs> she's singing that. But then the other one, when they go to Tortuga, there's that wonderful panning shot of the whole village and there's stuff happening in the foreground and the background. That's pretty much just a stretch of the ride. We see the, we see the wench auction. We see the pirate yeah. being pulled up out of the well and spouting water yes. out of his mouth. Like it, it takes like the, the film is clearly being indulgent there, but it is, it's kind of cute seeing those details from the ride reproduced on the big screen. 
So one thing I'll add to that, um, I think Tortuga is a wonderful conceit. So in the original ride, as it's conceived, the ride, it does follow a narrative of it's you're sort of traveling back into this mythical past and you're following this legend of pirates raiding a poor town and gradually, you know, sending it to hell, um, which is not what Tortuga is. Tortuga is conceived of as this pirate city that is essentially the only rule is there are no rules hmm. and anyone can come and do anything that they want. And I love the idea of a city that is essentially constantly 24 hours a day, seven days a week in a state of chaos, fights breaking out, free love, uh, theft. And it's a wonderful visual, but um, it's, it's also wonderful how that, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's anarchic, but it plays into the idea of the pirates being the original democracy and the original free society. Um, you know, and perhaps it's a, a bit of a bad dream, but uh, it's, a, it's a really clever idea, and there's a certain joyousness to, uh, to what we see up on screen. Yeah, that makes me think, you know, if uh, maybe in a future season of the HBO show Westworld, there'll be a pirate world section. <laughs> you never know. So um, I'll, um, I'm going to throw in a bit of a shameless sure. self-promotion here. Um, you were mentioning the um, the casual references in the film to adventures uh, that may have happened or may yet come for the characters. So for any uh, listeners who want to see how, uh, the film I made when I was 19, so if you look up the early years of Captain Jack Spur on YouTube, there's, um, there's a lot of sort of reversed Easter eggs built into it. But I will tell you, there's a throwaway line in uh, The Curse of the Black Pearl, where Jack Sparrow says, uh, and then they made me their chief. Um, just keep that in mind when you watch my film, and you'll see that uh, it's all connected. And ironically, Johnny Depp starred in a Lone Ranger film. Oh, ah, years yes. Later. Ah, yes. I am convinced that that Lone Ranger film had to have started life as a different movie, and then the studio got the rights to the Lone Ranger and changed the character names. <laughs> well, that's what happened with Sony and Starship Troopers. It was originally a script called, like, I don't know, like, Bugs from Mars or whatever. No, no, it was, it was, it was like Bug Hunt on Outpost 13, I think. Oh, okay, yeah. It was the development oh. title. Um, all right, well, any last sort of, you know, favorite scenes from the film, then we can give our ratings and move on to our other fabulous segments. Well, I think I've said what I need to say. I will yield my time to our guest. Okay. Uh, no, there's uh, there's plenty to talk about, but I think we summed up the fact it's a very enjoyable film, um, mm -hmm. and um, it's uh, been an iconic, uh, it was an iconic part of my youth, and um, it uh, has aged very well over the past 15 years. Yeah, I would say, you know, you were mentioning the, the references to the ride thrasher. I will be that person and point out two more. Uh, <laughs> one is when Jack Sparrow is in prison and the other prisoners are holding their hand through the gates of the prison trying to get the dog to come over wiggling the keys that's something oh. i recall being in the right mind you i haven't been to a disney theme park in 30 years um well i've never been to any disney theme park the only reason i know oh. is because i've seen a lot of footage of that ride on different like how did they do that style uh, shows about years. You know? yeah um there was a marvelous thing i think it was last year to promote the most recent pirates movie Johnny Depp himself, uh, dressed up in costume as Captain Jack Sparrow, <laughs> was in the ride in uh, Anaheim and like came to life and started running towards the boat and people started freaking out. And there's some uh, pretty good YouTube videos of that. I think that's a pretty clever bit of promotion. So, so that would be a, a good juncture for me in turn to be that guy who has been yes. in multiple Disney parks multiple times. Okay. Say, yeah. So I've, I've had the, the pleasure of actually um, going on the ride both before and after the films. 
Um, mm, so I can right. vouch for the fact now that this is, granted, this is my personal taste, but um, there was a great controversy um, around the time of, I forget if it was Dead Man's Chest or At World's End when Barbosa and Jack Sparrow were added to the ride. And of course, I mean, this was, it, mm. it caused a, a tremendous haydu because, um, you know, this is the theme park history. But I, I will say, I think the way that they've been added is quite tasteful. Um, oh. And um, it, it's, you know, they, the two characters, actually, as I recall, Barbosa, at least in the Tokyo version of the ride, Barbosa only shows up once in the original sort of grand um, main area where you go through and there's the pirate ship. Jack shows up, I think, three or four times. Um, but at no point does it take away from any of the original iconic moments in the ride. And um, they're, you know, they're charming additions that weave the characters into the film. So um, my uh, tricorn, I'll, I'll doff my tricorn to uh, the Imagineers and how they achieved that. Yeah, the... Um... Yeah, I have not been to see that version, so that's that's nice. It's done tastefully. Uh, I do one ride I loved as a kid, which I understand has been replaced for quite some time, was the Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. Uh -huh. Ah, yes. Which was a similar, I guess they call these dark rides or something, where you're on a fixed track that uh, goes around and has kind of a narrative element to it. But I, I loved seeing the weasels in hell, and then later, a few years later, I think I saw the uh, Roger Rabbit in the theaters, and I'm like, oh, I know where those weasels are from. So... <laughs> Uh, yes. All right, so I, I, um, we have a rating system of either sequel yes or sequel no. I give Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, a sequel yes. Uh, fine start to a franchise. It, it, and I have to stress, I like how simple the story is. Even though it's kind of long, the story, I don't think it's too convoluted. And there's not too many Luke, I am your father style reveals uh, in this movie. And uh, maybe that'll change for the sequels. We'll have to find out. <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give it a sequel. Yes, as well. Like, I, I this movie really does hold up. I do I do really enjoy it. It's it's it it, it leaves me it leaves me hungry for more. Uh, like, I do want to see what could happen next. So I agree with everything you said, and I'm going to give it a resounding sequel. Yes, uh, for all the reasons I've stated previously. Um, that having been said, one thing I would like to stress is as though um, although I can definitely uh, envision a world in which there would be sequels. And in fact, I was greatly looking forward to and have enjoyed several of the sequels. One of the things that makes this film um, exceptional, I think, is age well, is that it contains a self, it, it tells a self-contained story um, that I think is, is well-constructed and it pays off everything that it sets up within itself. So resounding sequel, yes, but if there had been a world with no sequels, it would still hold up as a fine film. Yep. Um... So we're going to do a pitch a sequel. We're going to pretend like there is no sequels to this film, which is hard to do because there's been a lot mm -hmm. in not that, not that many years. Uh, so what would we do as a sequel? I, I, you know, I think I have something in mind. I think I would, since uh, after the credits we get a sort of teaser shot of the monkey picking up a coin and we see zombie monkey, I would want it to be all about the, the monkeys. It would be Pirates of the Caribbean and monkey origins. And it would be <laughs> how this monkey became... Uh, not Monkey Island quite, but um, <laughs> how that monkey ended up becoming a pirate and joining Hector Barbosa. And the monkey will have like a tragic backstory of some sort, or maybe there's a maybe the monkey is is gay and his boyfriend is with the uh, the British Navy, and he can't decide whether to stay with his monkey pirate self or join the British Navy. And it'll be sort of a star-crossed lovers. Star-crossed lovers here, yeah, Ro Romeo and Romeo, as it were. 
Romeo and Tybalt, <laughs> I guess, is a better thing. Uh, and it would the monkeys would not speak uh, in English or anything, and there wouldn't be subtitles. So it would be a lot of, uh, to make it kind of artsy, a lot of just sort of wordless sequences of... And sort of close up on the eyes, and, and the, the, the music would have to communicate some of what they're feeling. Um, so, um, would there be a subplot involving um, Mr. Cotton and his parrot, um, involving the uh, the bittersweet story of how he gets his tongue cut out and he learns to have his parrot communicate for him? Seems that, right that uh, to be I, I think so. I think that yeah. I, think, uh, I think we're on to something there, and. The scene where uh, the the ton is lost, we get a um, a, a puritanical uh, musical cover of "Stuck in the Middle with You." <laughs> so, so there you go. And so, Pirates of the Caribbean monkey origins, uh, Thrasher. So mine. So we mentioned that this takes place in the 1700s, and a lot of history happens in the 1700s. So I'm going to lock this film in time. I'm going to say that the events of this film. Uh, the events of my sequel are going to take place in parallel with the American Revolution. Mm. So the Revolutionary War is in full swing, and I really want to introduce a supernatural element. And I want to bring it into some, some mythology from the New World, so it's going to tie in to the Salem Witch Trials. The short, the short version is um, some women uh, from Massachusetts who want to support the revolution, they do this magic ritual that resurrects all these dead sailors and pirates as ghost pirates, and they use them ghosts by to attack British ships and to support the revolution. And everything's going great, except that one of these women has become corrupted by an actual witch who died in the Salem Witch Trials. Now keep in mind, um, the Salem Witch Trials were mass hysteria. I don't believe, like, no, no, I don't believe any actual witches were executed. Certainly no evil witches. So this movie, there will be a distinction between good and bad witches. And in fact, we will have a good witch uh, trying to help Jack Sparrow. Because what's happening is the corrupted evil witch, she decides, well, why stop with American independence? My fleet grows every time a pirate dies on off of our shores. I'm going to take over America. We're not going to have a constitution. We're going to have the iron rule of a crazy old crone. And so that's uh, so that's what makes stopping these new ghost pirates uh, so important, uh, uh, is that if, if they don't stop the ghost pirates, the American Revolution will be won by someone even more tyrannical and crazy than Mad Prince George. Uh, and so that's going to be the big conflict is trying to is trying to stop the crone who's going to use her ghost pirates to take over America and maybe even the world. Uh, and I'm going to call this uh, I'm going to call this uh, Pirates of the Caribbean two uh, Pirates of the Caribbean two uh, Lair of the White Witch. Ah, ah yeah, yeah. yes, <laughs> very, very nice, very Stoker. nice. There you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, Eric, what say you? Yes, so um, I'm going to pitch uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Here There Be Monsters. Um, and so I'm going to imagine a world which um, is, I think would have been plausible for the time, 2003, which was, um, I'd say, right at the cusp of the golden age of DVDs. And if you could remember, this was an era in which um, animated um, you know, feature-length film tie-ins on DVD were all the rage. Oh. Right. Um, so I'm going to imagine an alternate universe in which um, LXG was the hit film of that weekend. But Pirates of the Caribbean made just enough money for Disney to think there was some money in doing an, an animated follow-up. 
Mm-hmm. Um, just enough money, in fact, that they're going to hire Jindy Tarkovsky. So this is going to be a batshit crazy, stylish, wonderfully well-executed uh, animated film. And so Pirates of the Caribbean, Here There Be Monsters, it follows its direct sequel. It follows the further adventures of Jack and his new crew on the Black Pearl as they go to reclaim the treasure on the Isla de Muerta. However, when they get there, they discover something, which is that the runes and iconography on the cursed Aztec chants resemble a tattoo from Ana Maria, who is, as you remember, she's a supporting character, played by the wonderful Zoe Saldana, and a, I would argue a uh, woefully um, underdeveloped supporting character. So this is going to be, um, the, she's going to have a major arc in this film, where her tattoo and the runes in the chest reveal the fact that she, as they discover over the course of the film, she is the key to rediscovering the lost city of El Dorado, which is the origins of this treasure. And, of course, Jack, being obsessed with both Elder Mon- with both uh, immortality and treasure, becomes hellbent in this quest. Anna Maria becomes hellbent on finding her true destiny. Meanwhile in this, Norrington is still on the trail of Jack. And Norrington also has a subplot in this film because... Um, he, as we're beginning to discover in the previous film, he's struggling within the limits of the Navy and aristocracy and increasingly is growing to admire Jack um, and the freedom that uh, he sees in his life and the ability to attain anything that uh, he can desire. So as the film goes on and there's this cat and mouse chase, Norrington is increasingly coming to aspire to a pirate life himself. All well, the villainous... Admiral Theodore Tusk of the British Navy, who is a bigger, badder, and far worse villain, is on their trail and is obsessed with uh, finding the city of El Dorado for himself. All of which climaxes in a dramatic showdown in El Dorado, where Anna Maria not only discovers she is the lost princess, but the heathen gods who were previously mentioned in uh, The Curse of the Black Pearl are revealed as these giant dinosaur-esque monsters. And there's a dramatic showdown ending with the city, uh, with the, the princess reuniting with the city and it being restored to its full glory. The bad guys are destroyed. Jack is, he narrowly escapes from the city with just enough treasure uh, to uh, continue on further adventures with his, uh, his faithful crew. And Anna Maria finds uh, her true destiny. So that will be Pirates of the Caribbean, Here There Be Monsters. That's really neat, you know, and, and that I almost forgot that around that period of time, you're absolutely right. I think perhaps inspired by Animatrix and stuff like that, you yes. had a lot of, um, you know, direct-to-video animated things. Van Helsing had one that was a prequel. Uh, Pitch Black, Chronicles I think, had Riddick. a pretty... Yeah, yes. I, think the, the, I thought that one was pretty good. I liked the Riddick one. And um, there's... There a Charlie's is... Angels one for the second Charlie's Angels film, as what? I recall. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I mean... I, it... I don't... Huh, I don't remember it's not that. as well remembered, yeah. but it's supposed to be. It was like a, a little animated, like a thirty-minute animated thing, and it's what each of the angels is doing right before they get pulled back mm-hmm. in for the season. Well, I, I chose Jenny Tarkovsky because I think the best example of these was the series of um, first season, I believe, it was two minutes, and then the second season was four. The series of Clone Wars, Clone Wars. Yeah, yeah. which are really excellent, and I think it's unfortunate mm-hmm. they've become a bit of a black sheep um, of Star Wars ephemera floating out there but they um they're they're truly excellent and they deserve far more love than they've gotten over the years well yeah i mean speaking of which uh you know thrasher and i on the same podcast feed we've started a show looking at the star wars droids cartoon yes which is another uh overlooked series and and now that disney owns everything 
Uh, I think there's been some positives from it. You can get a lot of the old Star Wars video games now through uh, good old games or Steam and those kind of services, and you would think it's money on the table to have this stuff available. Maybe you'll see some of this stuff on their streaming service that comes out in 2019. Who knows? But I'm um, still waiting for my uh, Battle of Endor uh, Blu-ray Ultimate Edition. I'm yeah, um, Courage Man myself. <laughs> <laughs> and and if you want something uh, really bizarre, Seth Green and George Lucas produced 40 episode, 30 or 40 episodes of a Star Wars. Um, Star think Wars. of it like. What, yeah. what was it? It was called Star Wars Detours. That's right, yeah. So it's sort of like, think of like a, a PG robot chicken, but Star Wars, and it's all animated, it's not uh, action figures. And it was completely produced, and then uh, by the time it was all finished, it was right around the Disney takeover, and Disney said, we don't want this out there because it's disrespectful to the original trilogy. And uh, we got making fun of the multi-billion dollar purchase we just made. <laughs> Well, as I recall, the, yeah. I mean, the the official statement was a wonderful bit of uh, of corporate ease of something like mm -hmm. this does not reflect uh, our vision for Star Wars in the next few years. <laughs> yeah. Oh, jeez. Well, uh, Thrasher, I think you have a question for us. Uh, yes, and that question is, where is Jack Sparrow? No, it's actually, uh, what are you watching? <laughs> uh, Eric, why don't you begin? So um, I have a highfalutin answer and a, um, a more fun answer. The highfalutin answer um, is actually very short, which is as of uh, just a few hours ago, um, revealing the time zone I'm in, I watched uh, David Lowry's A Ghost Story, which mm. is um, superb. I think it's a marvelous piece of filmmaking and, um, and storytelling in general. That having been said, there's very little I can say about it without getting into revealing the, um, the mechanics of the plot. So I will just say that I, I think it's a masterwork, um, it does what all great films should, which is that um, every every aspect of the filmmaking fits into and complements the story and the themes at hand. So highly recommended to anyone in a reflective mood about life and what we leave behind after our life is over. Now, the more fun thing is I'm a member of a club here in Japan called the Space Godzilla Club, which reflecting the um, six members of the club, um, myself being one of the six, who believe that Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla is the best Godzilla film ever created. And the conceit of the club is we meet about once every month to uh, watch a film, generally in the Heisei Godzilla series, and get drunk and tell a lot of jokes. So up on the most recent roster, and uh, the last um, club meeting of the year was 1992's Godzilla vs. Mothra. Um, now, I should uh, clarify that this particular meeting in the club, we um, got a bit more inebriated than usually happens, so I was not quite in a quite in a focused state of mind when I saw the film. That had been said, um, it was quite enjoyable, and I was struck again. Um, Batra is a kaiju that does not get um, enough love, and um, Batra not only has a wonderful design, um, but uh, has one of the more memorable transformation scenes in uh, recent Godzilla films. So, um, yes, also highly recommended. Godzilla vs. Mothra. Cool. It's been a while since I've seen that one, but I really did enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in fact, speaking of which, um, as part of the sequel cast library, I've tracked down all the Godzilla films the past few months. I just have to put mm -hmm. them on our sequel cast server that we use to, you know, line things up. But in the United States, it's quite difficult to get a hold of those movies. Because so many different, there's so many different deals with so many different uh, publishers. Yeah. And in Australia, it's in Australia. I, I almost considered getting an Australian DVD player to get the Australian sets because it's much more simple. But I didn't. Mm. Um, 
But in Australia, it's just four box sets all through the same publisher. Uh, Showa series volume one and two, Hisei, and then uh, Millennium. That's, yeah. But in, but in the United States, it's like over a dozen different things. And then I had to go bootleg for a few titles because I wanted the Japanese version with the subtitles. Yeah. Um, which some have never been available uh, legally in the U.S., yeah, no, um, I uh, I committed um, video piracy from a, a very young age because I wanted to see these films, <laughs> and um, yeah. it uh, you know when I look back on it, the fact that at age uh, ten or eleven I had illegal copies of media on my bookshelf, it's um, it's atrocious to think about. Um, I, I like to think that the arc of the rest of my life has been to make up for that. Um, listeners, <laughs> this is great listening, but um, I'm holding up. Matt and Thresh realize that I'm holding up a, a Godzilla figure right now, so. I've given plenty of money to Toho uh, since then to make up for uh, crimes committed in my youth. Well, I mean, that's the thing. We like we we want to buy these movies. We want to yes, legitimately yeah. support these studios and these creators, but they have to be willing to sell to us. Yeah, right. If you won't sell to people mm-hmm. who want to buy it, you are throwing all that business to the bootleggers. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And. Uh... Yeah, it makes me think of uh, oh, what Square Enix came out with that Final Fantasy VII, oh, whatever the hell it was, the direct-to-video uh, cartoon. Oh, yeah. And by, and by the time it came out in America, it had been in Japan for two years and bootlegged to hell and back. Yeah. And I think the sales were a bit disappointing. It's like, I wonder why. Yeah. Uh, but anyhow, um, let's see. Uh, Thrasher, what's something you've been watching? So I, I re-watched uh, Pottersville. Which is this this infamous uh, film from two thousand or two thousand seventeen, sort of nominally a Christmas film, uh, directed by Seth Hendrickson, written by Daniel Meyer, starring Michael Shannon, Judy Greer, Thomas Lennon, Ron Perlman, Christina Hendricks, and Ian McShane. A true embarrassment of riches in the talent behind this movie. No kidding. This is not a good movie, Uh, but it's sort of, but it's not bad. It's just sort of all around inexplicable. Um, it feels like a movie that was procedurally generated by an artificial intelligence, but a really good artificial intelligence that unfortunately had been preloaded with a weird mix of films to base its procedurally generated movie off of. So the question that immediately comes to mind is Pottersville is the name of the alternate universe featured in It's a Wonderful Life, in which uh, George Bailey was never born. Is there any connection uh, to that Pottersville in this? Not really. I mean, it's it's clearly a reference to It's a Wonderful Life, but th- that's pretty much it. It's just sort of the reference. Um, like mm. thematically, there isn't much uh, overlap, and nobody and nobody like specifically calls out the fact that it's named after the alternate reality town uh, from It's a Wonderful Life. But like the the premise, like so, like this is the premise is that. Um, Michael Shannon plays this like local shop teacher in this kind of northern New England type town, probably the type of town that like its business is tourism based and it's all people coming in from out of town for like bed and breakfast and wine tastings and visiting the local cheese crafters. Not that they ever spell that out. Like they never really anchor what the reality of this town is. But he runs this local shop, and the town's just kind of economically falling apart, though it always looks gorgeous. It doesn't look like a place that's go, that's entering, like, its third year of recession. Um, and he short, the short version is he discovers that his wife is cheating on him. But mm. she's not just cheating on him. She's having furry orgies with the town sheriff, played by Ron Perlman. Wow. 
And I didn't expect you to go there, but okay. That, that's what every moment in this movie is like. Uh, and so what 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 the inside what gets things going is that on the night he finds this out, he goes back to his shop, spirals into so much of a depression, he opens this box of wine, gets absolutely drunk blitzed out of his mind and he finds this old Halloween gorilla costume so he puts on the Halloween gorilla costume and just rampages through the town committing acts of petty vandalism and somehow Mm. inexplicably this leads to a rash of Bigfoot sightings and suddenly the town becomes like the Bigfoot capital of the world and tourism picks up as crackpots <laughs> come to the town to try to catch a glimpse of Bigfoot. So to keep the town's economy stable, he has to keep getting drunk and going on rampages in a gorilla suit. As I said, it, it, it is a movie, it feels like a procedurally generated movie. And like it, can, it is a comedy. I didn't laugh once, but I was constantly acknowledging, structurally, this is a joke. Um, wait, so one question, again, perhaps that I'm, um, I'm logically analyzing this too much, but you referred to furry orgies with Ron Perlman. Now, there is a sexual fetish um, known as furries involving yes. dressing. Is this the same, the same furries? Yes, yes, it is. Okay, okay, so that, well, so that is connected. Um, does, that, uh, does that come to play in the climax? It, it does not come into play in the climax, but it does. The fact that the town has a sizable furry community, which by the time it reaches its height would seem to imply that the furry community is the entire town except for Michael Shannon, though this is they never hang a lantern on it. It comes back several times, but it doesn't really factor into the end of the film. But the fact that this subculture is active in the area is... Uh, in fact, actually, there's a, there's a set piece in the film, which is a furry rave in the middle of the forest. Well, you sure can't say that that premise is uh, forgettable. Yeah, it's, it's, so, it's so strange, because, like, again, it's a comedy, but I never laugh, but I find it endlessly fascinating. Yeah. I'd like to, I'd like to hear what the furry community's thoughts on that film are. You know, that's, that's, yeah. it, would be worth, it would be worth exploring because it's it's funny because like it it does include some of the same sort of furry stereotypes you might see in like that infamous episode of CSI. Yeah. But that being said, it's treated as so normal and matter of fact. It's not as if they're actively trying to shame anybody. So, again, it's very weird. It's like, well, if it has furries, it must have these stereotypes. But also, it's treated as completely normal at the same time. It's it's very strange. Yeah, what you describe of that premise does not sound condescending or um, you know right. uh, retrograde um, at all. So uh, that's uh, hmm. Like, and I'm, I'm not a furry, so I can't offer a furry's perspective on it. But it's like I I don't I don't I it's the most matter-of-fact portrayal of that subculture that I think I've ever seen on film. Well, I believe intriguing would be the operative word for this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've never even heard of that film. You've piqued my interest, I think. Or if I did, I see the name Potterville, and I think Harry Potter, which I don't like very much, so I <laughs> proceed to ignore it. But um, anyhow, yeah, so uh, something I've been checking out, I um, I could be a public transportation, and uh, I figured you know I might as well do audiobooks instead of listening to podcasts, despite the mm-hmm. fact I host podcasts, because I want to get some reading done, as it were, and I, I just finished the 25-hour audiobook of Anything You Can Imagine, Peter Jackson and the Making of Middle Earth by Ian Nathan. Oh. Um, so, on the one hand, uh, this book, the book itself runs about 600 pages. Um, on the one hand, it covers Lord of the Rings in almost pornographic detail, with all the rights issues to get that made and everything. 
And a lot of the... It was better in the beginning than uh, as it goes along because I knew a lot of the other stuff from the documentaries. On the other hand, from the title, Making of Middle-Earth, I assumed I would get some good dirt on the Hobbit movies. Mm. And when it gets to that point of Peter Jackson's career, they just kind of scurry right through it in a piddly, like, 50 pages, which hmm. somewhat let me down. That being said, I think the book is very well written, and it's one of the better, um, probably the best film book I've read since uh, Stuart Galbraith IV's The Emperor and the Wolf that looks at uh, Kurosawa and Mifune's career. Mm. Uh, which I don't know if you've read that, Eric, but that's an excellent I, I, book. I have not, no. Um, I, I am familiar with the author, though, and he's a, he's a quite well-restricted uh, Japanese film historian. Yep. Um, another good Japanese film historian is Donald Ritchie, although I think he's... Oh, yeah, no, he's a, he, he's a legend in the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, very good. Uh, all right, so, um, Eric, is there anything you'd like to plug? Well, I think the simplest um, thing we can say, so um, my, I do have a short film, Pelionaut, that's been playing at, uh, at quite a lot of film festivals the past year. I've been, uh, been very blessed in that regard. Um, as of this recording, I don't have a screening to announce. Um, if you had been in Berlin a couple of weeks ago, I could have announced the uh, Berlin Sci-Fi Film Festival. As it is, I would say uh, if you Google Paleonaut, um, P-A-L-E-O-N-A-U-T, uh, then you'll find all the information about it, and um, any new new screening news will be added uh, ASAP. Um, also, I will say, uh, if you want to see a odd bit of film ephemera, uh, Google the early years of Captain Jack Sparrow, and you will see, um, to date, as I know, the only Pirates of the Caribbean prequel in existence. <laughs> give, it some, give it some time. If you ever try <laughs> to mail that to uh, the screen, you know, the... the... Disney or something? I guess you'd get a cease and desist. <laughs> uh, uh, so, no, uh, well, funny you should mention that. Um, I uh, made an attempt, let's see, around 2007 uh, when I um, had some friends who worked at Disney who um, were friends of Gore Verbinski, and um, I never heard anything from that, so I don't know how far it went. Um, that having been said, my, um, my policy is uh, that uh, I, I hope that a few years from now, at a cocktail party or such, I'll be in a position where uh, perhaps I'll be able to meet one of the people involved, and then I can um, quietly uh, send them a link via a uh, via an email exchanged. You so uh, you know, but it's online. So if uh, if any of them discover it, they'll also um, hopefully they'll be nice enough to um, well, first of all, they'll they'll be able to read the uh, disclaimer about uh, no uh, money being made from it. Um, hopefully they'll also be riveted by the content enough to read all the way to the end credits where they'll see the long list of loving thanks slash apologies to all the filmmakers involved. And uh, they'll realize the love and irreverent affection that went into it. And uh, Mr. Thrasher, what do you want to plug this week? Anything well, new? Uh, what Actually, strangely enough, I do have something new. If you go to drivethroughrpg.com, look for Skirmisher Publishing LLC. Uh, let me make sure I'm getting the title right. So I wrote uh, a little while ago uh, in my early Pathfinder development days, I wrote an article about uh, monster hybrids as, uh, as playable characters in Pathfinder. So characters where like one parent was a human, one parent was a monster. Uh, to get beyond just the normal stereotypical half-orc and half-elf. Uh, and so that article has been expanded, repurposed, and published as its own mini-source book. I believe it's called Three Monstrous Hybrids. Let me uh, do a quick 
look up just to make sure I'm giving the right name. But uh, it includes, uh, let's see, it includes the Hagborn, the spawn of a uh, human being and a hag, a beastkin, who can either be where one of the parents has lycanthropy or has been subjected to way too many polymorph spells. Or, let me see, what else did we have? Oh, Dom Piers, I have a a playable version of Dom Piers, which I prefer to the version that was introduced in the Pathfinder uh, Monster Guides. Uh, Here we go. Yes, Monstrous Hybrids for Pathfinder. Just look for that from Skirmisher Publishing, LLC. Awesome. I'm kind of of curious, Thresher. You've been writing these RPG supplements for for quite some time. Which is the best seller? Uh, I... That's going to be difficult to say because the only ones I get to see sales numbers for uh, are from Skirmisher. Uh, my stuff that I've released, stuff that I've done for other companies, I don't get to see sales numbers because uh, mm. I'm not I'm not on the staff. I'm just a freelancer for those projects. Yeah, I see. Right. Um, so I suspect I know what the bestseller is. I, I probably the bestseller is Wrath and Glory, the new Warhammer 40,000 RPG, because that's a huge IP. It's very well-known. This is North America. It's done a real good job promoting it. But as far as... uh, But as far as what I've done from Skirmisher, I can check, and I'm actually... Okay, so it looks like the best-selling thing that I have ever had a hand in looks like that's going to be 100 oddities for a creepy old house. Ah, lovely. Fascinating. Yeah. Can't divulge the numbers, but that <laughs> has been overall that's sold the most copies in PDF. It's amazing how high single digits can go. No. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been working on something I can't talk about too much. I'm working on a uh, a retro RPG for uh, German director Uwe Boll. Nice. Ah. And. Um, so doing some of my old game design skills I learned in college, and it's 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 good, and it's a good lesson in um, adapting something that's adapted from a, a screenplay. And I have some wiggle room, but it's more interesting in like how do you force feed a game structure into mm-hmm. a, a film script, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, but I think if you're thinking of what the gameplay might be, think of more like the Final Fantasy games for Super Nintendo or something. Sort of the mixture of very difficult dungeons and very long cutscenes with kind of slapstick comedy. Mm. Um, so so it, it'll be interesting. It'll be quite strange. But um, we'll see. I'd, I'd love to talk about it when it comes out, but who knows? So we'll just have to see what happens. As one of the producers on the project told me, expect everything and nothing, which I think is pretty good advice. <laughs> well, perhaps I should uh, advise you with a quote from the film we just discussed, which is, take what you can, give nothing back. <laughs> That's the UA Bowl promise. Cheese. <laughs> I uh, I cannot comment. I, I totally understand. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, next next week we'll be talking about Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. Is that the name of it? I get so confused with these titles. Yes. I think it's Dead Man's Chest. Where we yes. will answer the immortal question: Do you fear death? Do you fear that black abyss, or your deeds laid bare? Are your sins punished? I have a feeling you've seen these movies before, Eric. Oh, uh, I've uh, done my time. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, thanks again, Eric, for coming on the show. I think oh, we're no, going to have you on for a few more of these uh, pirate shows, time permitting. So, 
Um, and is there a website where people can check out your work or Twitter or some kind of social uh, I, media? I am uh, I am not on Twitter, but uh, I say the easiest thing would be uh, if you Google Paleonaut, which would be um, P-A-L-E-O-N-A-U-T. Uh, you'll find my official site, and you'll also find all the related social media sites and various interviews and things that have popped up about me recently. So uh, look up Paleonaut, and you'll find uh, all my ephemera floating around there. All the right. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. So... Um... I guess for the sign-off, Eric, we'll let you do the sign-off and just say one of your favorite lines from the movie. Well, are we going to do a sequel scene? Because I did find a scene that has three characters. Oh, oh yes. I am my mistake. Sure. So let's did, open up the chat and Skype. Yeah, the second, the second message has a three-character scene. Okay. okay. Did you post something? I'm not seeing it. It should be... Uh, I know I sent it to you. Let me... Um, Hold on, let's let me. I, no, I just, I just accepted the chat. Let's see. Hold on, I, I might. So. Okay. Oh, do you see it? I do not see it yet. Um, uh, however, I'm seeing. Ah, uh, yeah, yes, here we are. Ah, X. Ah, a good choice. Good choice. Okay, so which um, is it the Murtog and Mulroy scene? Is that the one we're doing? Yep, and Jack Sparrow's there too. Yes. Okay, so who? Um, let's see. Um, guest gets first pick. Yeah, well, um, I, I will say the only character in this film that I can do a passable um, impression of is uh, is Barbosa. So with that in mind, I will choose a Murtog. Okay. Um, I guess I'll be Jack. Okay. <laughs> and I'll be more Mulroy. Yes. And uh, why don't you give the um, why don't you lay the, set the scene, Thrasher? Well, this uh, this is after Jack Sparrow's ship sinks and he returns to civilization, uh, and so he's being uh, he's he's being cornered by the authorities to find out whether his intentions on dry land are honorable. All right, and I forgot, am I Murtaugh or Moroy? Uh, yes. Okay, the first one. All right, very good. What's your purpose in Port Royal, Mister Smith? Yeah, and no lies. Well then, I confess. It's my intention to commandeer one of these ships, pick up a crew in Tortuga, raid, pillage, plunder, and otherwise pilfer my weaselly black guts out. I said no lies. I think he's telling the truth. If he were telling the truth, he wouldn't have told us. Unless, of course, he knew you wouldn't believe the truth, even if he had told it to you. Yeah, that's difficult to get the drunken Jack Sparrow sound down. Uh, I, I feel like I have to wobble side to side. Uh, <laughs> yeah. One, uh, you know, one um, final thought this brings up, though, is uh, one of the running themes in the film is characters dramatically intoning bits of, um, of narrative information about the plot, which Jack will immediately undercut with some sort of non-sequitur. Um, you know, there's a wonderful scene where he's in prison where the characters are saying they've been hearing stories narrowed by ten years of the Black Pearl leaving no survivors, which Jack uh, adds, yes, but if there are no survivors, where did the stories come from? And uh, it's true. It's, it, it's a wonderful way of undercutting the uh, you know the tension and the the over seriousness of uh, of some of what's going on. So, my hats off to this script. Yeah, the script is far better than it has any rights to be for a movie based off a theme park attraction. <laughs> Um, all right, so uh, so next week we'll be talking about Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, 
Um, you can check out episodes of the, the show. Just go to sequelcast2.podbean.com. Um, if you like the show, or even if you hate it, leave us a review on the uh, Apple Podcast app or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen to us on Stitcher. And uh, as always, the theme song is written and performed by Mark with a C. Go to his website at markwithac.com. Um, so for a sequel cast, this is Matt. This is Thrasher. And this is Eric. Saying. Take what you can. Very good. Give nothing back. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Apparently I've seen this film more than either of you. <laughs> yes. Uh... So I guess sound-wise, um, maybe the soundtrack from the ride itself, that was available on this really awesome Disney uh, music retrospective. So and there is an MP3 of it out there somewhere. If you can, yeah, I, I can look I, for that for... I, I own, I have that, that MP3, so um, if you're a niece of it. Okay, I think there's also, for a later episode, I might want to do um, one of the many sort of, you know, music from Disneyland uh, things. Tim Curry does a cover of, like, Yo Ho Ho, A Pirate's Life for me. Or no, never mind, he does a cover of Davy Crockett, I'm mistaken. There's nothing to do with Pirates whatsoever. I'm going to mountain chalk and tunnel sayer. He killed a bear! It's very much a spoken word, and all the... All, the, uh, the of that. all right well thanks eric for doing this uh oh no this is a lot of fun uh, thank oh, you guys yeah likewise <laughs>